This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Venganza Media's podcast about all things in print. It's Books and Nachos, and I'm Stuart in L.A., here to talk to you about Die Hard. I mean it this time. This is Die Hard. It says so on the cover. I'm holding the book right here, although it wasn't originally published under that title. In 1979, Roderick Thorpe wrote the sequel to The Detective, his 1966 novel that introduced Joe Leland. He called this sequel Nothing Lasts Forever but it would be turned nine years later almost identically into the Bruce Willis action spectacular we all know and are reviewing over at our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com. And I know some of you might be wary if you dipped your nose into that Sinatra movie or the original novel. You might think, well, these books have nothing to do with what I want. I want an action movie. I want the thrills. I'm here to tell you right now, this is really, really close to the finished movie here. You might be surprised how similar Nothing Lasts Forever is to Die Hard. There's really only one or two major changes. So don't let any skepticism about what previously happened in The Detective scare you off. I think fans of the movie are going to like this book. And while I find it curious that a direct sequel is so different in tone to the original source novel, I also keep in mind that The Detective was written by a 30-year-old man wanting to pin that great American novel and really capture what was going on in the day. This is written by a middle-aged best-selling author who has no more ambitions than to really entertain the audience that he's built up and make some money. In between The Detective and Nothing Lasts Forever, he's published six books. He is now a well-known author. Roderick Thorpe doesn't seem to want to dwell on angst and marriage and have those 30 pages of people talking about their feelings. He wants to give you a page-turner, and so he creates an almost opposite of what The Detective was. It's a fleet, compressed timeline in one location that really is unrelenting in suspense and action. Nothing Lasts Forever is only 232 pages, which is less than half of what The Detective was. And it's all taking place really within 24 hours. It starts around 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Christmas Eve and wraps up around noon Christmas Day. And the chapters are even broken down hourly. Like we're watching the clock tick off as Joe Leland is running around the building. Thorpe has basically thrown almost all the characters from the original novel out. He mentions them in passing. We do get a backstory pretty quickly, run through how the last 20 years have been to Joe Leland. Basically, he had to bottom out. His detective agency closed due to financial issues and trouble he had with his partner, and he became an alcoholic. His wife, Karen, who was the one causing problems for him, ironically, she pulled it together and got away from Joe, remarried herself, eventually died of a heart attack in her sleep, and... Joe has kind of been drifting. You know, he eventually did get sobriety. He did try to go back to Norma Colucci, the woman that he had a flirtation with in The Detective, but it didn't work out, and she moved to the Caribbean with her new husband. Joe spends his time now basically flying around the country, giving lectures, seminars, offering advice to organizations about security issues. He's just wrapped up a three-day seminar in St. Louis. He's hopping the plane to spend the holidays with his daughter, 
Little Steffi has grown up in the detective. She was 16 years old. Well, now she is a divorcee herself with a married name of Gennaro. Two kids of her own. She is working in a big 40-story building in downtown Los Angeles run by Claxon Oil. And this is one of the big differences, I would say, between movie and book. Is In the movie, it was the Nakatomi Plaza. The Japanese were a presence. In the late 70s, much more central in people's minds were the energy crisis. So I think Roderick Thorpe thinks it's more topical to have this big Texas oil company situated here, Los Angeles. And Stephanie has worked her way almost to the top. She's third on the chain. She has a boss named Ellis, and above him is a big Texan named Rivers. But she's a big shot here. And Joe Leland is surprised to be given a limo ride to her place of work and find her closing a $150 billion deal for building a bridge in Chile. And Joe is none too happy to see that the woman is celebrating with her boss, Ellis, by snorting cocaine. That this is far less a Christmas party than it is, hey, we just pulled off a really big deal. And a morally suspect one. We'll come to find out that the government that they're working with in Chile is corrupt and oppressive. And that's really why Klaxon Oil is besieged by a dozen terrorists that arrive by 8 o'clock. And just like the movie, they are led by Anton Gruber, who we learn a little bit more about, I think, on the page. Because Joe Leland has become an expert on securities, it means that he's become fluent on all the international threats that can happen to corporations and companies. And that Anton Gruber is part of a offshoot of a German commie terrorist organization that promotes terror and enjoys killing. They count among them a poetess who writes odes to violence. And many of the supporting cast are directly from the movie. Hans and Carl are brothers who have shoulder-length blonde rock and roll hair. I mean, again, you will be surprised at how similar the beat-by-beats are once hostages are taken on the 32nd floor. And Joe Leland, barefoot because someone advised him on a flight once to wash your feet 10 minutes to relax, now has to take matters into his own hand, race to the 40th floor, where he sees Anton Gruber execute Rivers. Now, one of the things that was established about Joe Leland back with the detective was that he flew planes in World War II and is noted for killing a lot of Nazis. And so this fight really is about him getting back into the mentality of war. I would say the heavy subtext of all of this is can this old dog be the soldier again now that there is a new German threat besieging what's left of his family and the country? And once they kill Rivers, who was also a World War II vet, Joe is not going to play ball. He's not going to run downstairs and get help. He is going to get back into that mentality of being a killing machine and seeing if he can take out this dozen before they kill his daughter and his grandchildren or the 75 other hostages being held on floor 32. All in all, Nothing Lasts Forever hits harder than Die Hard. As far as when violence happens, it's actually much more gripping and realistic and brutal. For example, in his first kill with Hans, it happens the same way. He pulls the guy down and breaks his neck, but they just linger longer. The guy's bladder gives, and he's just left there holding the body of what he refers to as this boy. And again, he has to think again and again as he's killing the terrorists that he's killing people that are the age of his daughter or even younger, 20-year-olds, misguided youth. 
And Joe really becomes sad at seeing the state of affairs with youth culture as he's doing this execution. And it's women as well as men. It's a co-ed terrorist threat. He's really struck when he has to take out a woman. And that's something they didn't dare do with Bruce Willis. But as we tick through the hours, you're going to see a lot of the same set pieces you see in the movie. He does put a dead body into the elevator and says, now we have a gun on the shirt. And he throws another one out the window to get the attention of the authorities. And a black cop named Al Powell does become his buddy on a CB radio. There's no yippee ki but I would say that Joe gives a lot of attitude. He attributes that to staying awake and staying alive, is to force himself to be that youthful antagonist that can beat these guys, even though he's outnumbered, and doesn't even know what they want. And while Anton doesn't come to call him John Wayne, someone does mention the fact that he does look like Gary Cooper in Sergeant York. And you have to remember, this is an older man. This is not Bruce Willis. When I'm reading this novel, I'm picturing Frank Sinatra, as he would have been when they offered him the novel, you know. I think he actually probably was about 75 had he chosen to do Die Hard the movie, and we're probably all glad that he didn't. But here on the page, it really works to help me think of an old man with faltering sensibilities, barefoot, aghast at what he's having to turn himself back into to win the war against the German terrorists. One thing I think Thorpe really got wrong, though, was he killed off Karen. I mentioned that she died in her sleep of a heart attack. Well, Joe met a flight attendant on the way out here and got her phone number and is actually taking time out from killing the terrorist to communicate with her. And that just doesn't have the same resonance, really. In the movie, obviously, Bonnie Bedelia is playing the wife, and she's in danger. She's one of the hostages. She's playing the role that Stephanie is. It's less vital, less romantic to hear Joe Leland chat up a woman he just met on a plane as he's looking for solace in this dark Christmas night. It stretches credibility in a book that largely feels pretty authentic and really gripping. And every time we cut back to this flight attendant, I just kind of roll my eyes and wish this had been cut or he had kept Karen alive and that they had found her and that maybe they could have some of the same dynamic that Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia do in the movie. And perhaps the biggest way that this book differs from the Bruce Willis film is that the terrorists really are doing it for political reasons. In the movie, it all becomes sort of a heist where they're enriching themselves. Here, they are stealing money. It should be said there are six million in a safe that was taken from this bridge deal in Chile, but they're just going to redistribute it. They're not here to profit from this attack. They fully expect to lose members and are okay with it. It's it's all for the cause. They believe that Claxon Oil is immoral, that they had the right to shoot Rivers dead in the heart, that Stephanie and Ellis are helping to fund evil dictators with the supply of weapons that would be illegal if the U.S. government negotiated such a deal. And so by staging this spectacle in this building, they're bringing a political crime to light. And Joe ends up coming to agree with their side of things. He certainly can't endorse the method, but it's disheartening to find out that his daughter has gotten caught up in this shady arms deal. And spoiler alert, she pays with it for her life. All of the climax more or less happens the same as in the movie, except that when 
Anton Gruber is falling back out the window and pulling on Stephanie, she goes out that window with him. She dies. All the children are guilty of this crime and must pay with their life. That seems to be the message here. And Joe is left with no one but Al Powell down on the ground by the end of it. There's a couple more twists. I'll, I'll spare you all of it in case you do want to read it. And I, it's an endorsement. I think you should. If you like Die Hard, go check this one out. I don't feel like I've spoiled anything because it is so close to the movie. You already know what's going to happen for the most part. But you might be impressed with the way that Roderick Thorpe really gets you in the same way that John McTiernan and Bruce Willis do creating their action vibe. This one hits just as hard. No, this one hits harder. I'd say if you like Die Hard, this one will get you in the gut even more. Now, sadly, Roderick Thorpe would write four more novels. None of them would ever feature Joe Leland again. Even though he lived long past Die Hard's movie success, he was not asked back to pin more adventures for his character. They do have a literary origin for the movie we're going to watch next week. Die Hard 2 is based on a book, but is not a book by Roderick Thorpe, and it is not featuring a character that is Joe Leland. This was the last Joe Leland adventure, and that's a shame. I would have liked to have seen what else happened with the character, and maybe seen him have a happy ending, for gosh sakes. It really never seems to work out with him, with divorces and children falling out of windows and... I wanted better life than what this guy wound up with. But we all know it turns out well for John McClane, the character that they extrapolate from Joe Leland. And so I'm going to see this through. I will be back next week to cover that novel that they adapted into Die Hard 2. It's called 58 Minutes. It's written by Walter Wagger. Let's see if he can keep this action vibe going that was so successful here with Nothing Lasts Forever. We'll find out next week whether Die Hard 2 is worthwhile both as a movie at NowPlayingPodcast.com and in book form here at Books and Nachos. Until then, keep reading. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.